0: Hey, it's David, and welcome back to ToneBase Classical Guitar Podcast. Some great new content on ToneBase's Facebook page included a free series of live stream performances from some of the greats in the classical guitar industry, along with this on the ToneBase Group page on Facebook. Uh, Some of these performers are also offering technique workshops. If you enjoyed these lessons and workshops, I highly encourage you to head on over to Tonebase.co. Use the promo code PODCAST-3 for $15 off of a subscription to unlock hundreds of more lessons. Really excited to have John Taylor on the show today. A wonderful recording engineer. His work has been a great inspiration to me uh, for many years now. If you don't know the name, I can assure you, you've listened to quite a few of his productions. Just to name a couple of the artists he's recorded over the years, look at his extensive credits list. He's worked with David Russell, Elliot Fiss, Anavitovich. The list goes on and on and on. And I know for a fact that we've played many of his recordings uh, throughout the different seasons in the podcast. In fact, uh, even just last episode uh, with Laura Snowden when we listened to the Vita Guitar Quartet performing Light Perpetuum with Amy Green on the saxophone. Anyway, if you're not a recording engineer yourself or not sure if you have an interest in this field, I highly encourage you to still tune in. I think you'll find this conversation of great interest and usefulness still. Um, While we do dive into some of the technical aspects of recording the classical guitar and lute, we do focus uh, the majority of the conversation talking more about the musical uh, production element uh, as being a recording engineer for classical musicians. And what I mean by production is dealing with the different types of artistic personalities uh, that you work with uh, throughout the recording process. Some talents need someone to guide them in regards to uh, musical direction and different takes, uh, especially if maybe um, it's a fairly fresh transcription. And then some artists, you just need to hit record, watch the score, and just let them do your thing. And John goes into uh, some great detail about some sessions. For those of you who are uh, recording engineers or interested in audio altogether, uh, you're in for a treat. John does uh, dive into microphone choices, placements, acoustics, uh, and you get some really great insights on his approaches uh, to classical music recording. The second part of our interview, we speak about uh, some specific recording sessions and both the technical and production uh, elements uh, behind these. The first one being the Vita Guitar Quartet's Rhapsody in Blue, their own transcription. And then uh, we listen to a wonderful recording of Nigel North on the lute playing some Vice. And then we finish off with the infamous Fandango from Baccarini's Quintet for guitar and string quartet. I just wanted to make a quick note that unfortunately I do have to compress my podcasts into mp3 formats as they would simply be too large of a file size in order to upload into iTunes and Spotify in an uncompressed format. So these mp3s still give a pretty good representation on how things sound, but if you do enjoy the recording samples that we are going to listen to, I highly encourage you to buy the CDs, support the artists, and to hear the recordings in their highest quality possible. Since we're going to be listening to quite a few samples, I think we should go ahead and just jump right into our interview with John Taylor on the art of recording the classical guitar. One of my teachers I had for uh, recording when I was an undergrad, uh, Andrew Garver, an amazing engineer. And he was actually a mastering engineer originally. He was head of mastering at mm-hmm. A&M Records back when that was open. And mastering is a bit more on the technical side yeah. of music uh, production, yeah. especially for styles outside of classical music. But even he would really emphasize, you know, it doesn't matter about the gear or all that. All that matters is you capture the performance. And I think that's what you do so wonderfully. You, in essence, that's what you strive for the most, regardless of what you have to do and the technical aspect and that, any aspect, you're grasping the performance.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly what I aim to do. And I've always been aware of a trap with being a player myself or an ex player. It's fatally easy to start nudging uh, your customer. Towards the idea of the piece that you have yourself, you know. So I realised right at the beginning of of doing this job, what I must do is try to step back and instead of uh, being too ready to suggest what you should do, just to try and understand what the artist is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope they feel it's their recording it's not mine i'm not i'm not like a a film director uh, with my own grand conception guiding them to do what's in my mind you know it's got to be their idea they've got to feel totally in control from beginning to end of the process i try to avoid rushing them if they're quite sure they can get a better result by doing another take or two this is where i'm probably i probably err on on the side of letting sessions go on too long because that's also a trap you know well you 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 know this very well all guitarists and other musicians as well are such perfectionists that perfectionism can be obsessive and if you let people go on and on as long as they want to, some of them will just exhaust themselves possibly before they've got through half of their program uh, and used up all the time you've booked at the venue. Um, So it's a bit of a balancing act. But what I try to do is, is make it as unstressful as possible by making them feel, okay, we're not Actually, short of time, we don't have to do strictly three hour sessions with a compulsory tea break in the middle, you know, like an orchestral session or something like yeah, that. Yeah. We take a break when we feel like it. The break can be quite long if we if we get into a, a nice conversation, uh, you know, and, and uh, it, it just feels like you've got plenty of time to get all the material there to make. Each piece sound like a a wonderfully coherent performance, uh, where everything that you've been hoping to do because you've prepared it that way is there. Plus maybe one or two extra spontaneous moments where something happens by accident, or you suddenly have an idea. Ah, oh, I could I could do this. I could I could go quieter here instead. That would be nice. You know, something like that. Um, and, and, and so you, you get th- this excitement of a, of, of a new idea, which might come from the player or might possibly come from me. But uh, if it works, fine. You've got something a little bit more special to put into the finished edited version. If it doesn't work... You forget about it. You just discard yeah, it. Just move uh, on. You know, so you feel quite, quite free. And it, it's this, it's this freedom. I think that that gives at least the illusion that it, it is a, a performance with some spontaneity, even if in reality it's been constructed out of quite a high number of takes. I mean, typically, if you're recording a three-minute piece. It might take at least an hour, possibly more, to get all the material to put that together. Uh, you know, so you you might have four, five, six, even ten or or twelve uh, different possibilities for yeah. for each bit of the piece. Uh, but I try to make sure that we don't go go beyond the point where it starts to become self defeating, uh, and it becomes an exercise in simply trying to eliminate every trace of human frailty (laughs) because then actually you can lose more than you gain. You can, you can end up with something that sounds quite unnaturally perfect. Uh, So you, you know, you put the track on and you think, is this actually a person playing or what? One of the things I'd love
0: to talk about with you is um, your approach In general, I know we're just talking about how sometimes you really need to let the technical aspects uh, go, but I'm sure myself, clearly many of the listeners would be interested in hearing your general approach. Um, You tend to find beautiful spaces acoustically for each instrument, and you go into that space and you try to capture the sound as pure and beautiful within that space, is that the approach you almost always go for recording the classical guitar?
1: Yeah, so exactly um, what what I hope to do. In my experience is that uh, the choice of suitable venues is pretty small when you, you're you looking for all the ingredients you need. Uh, yeah. And especially for, for guitar, the number one thing is it's got to be quiet enough. Um, yeah. The acoustic has got to be responsive enough. Uh, It's got to be encouraging to play in in that way. The the place has got to be available for long stretches of time uh, at an affordable price. You know, Uh, now one it's got to be warm enough in the winter there are so many things that you're looking for the number of places that i keep returning to that that uh, tick all those boxes can be counted on the fingers of a badly mutilated hand you know um, <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it's it, so um but but there are certain places that uh, you know i'm pretty confident i'll be able to get a nice sound for the guitar not necessarily everyone's ideal of a good sound. You know people have quite different ideas of what to expect when they put on a CD and you can tell that the people who produce them have quite different ideas if you if you take um, a stack of guitar CDs at random it's uh, it's amazing uh, sometimes quite shocking how they vary from uh, the driest possible studio sound to uh, extremely reverberant sounds that are either real because they've been recorded in extremely reverberant places or they may have been recorded in drier places and a, a load of artificial reverb has been added over the top. I do hope not to have to use uh, these artificial ways of enhancing, in inverted commas, the sound. Ideally, you want it to sound great in, in real life. That way, the player knows what it really sounds like and is responding constantly to the sound that's coming back from all around. And you're just trying to capture that real sound even that is not a straightforward thing because the real sound at, at uh, one distance away can be radically different from having the mics um, a different distance. So, for example, if you if you have your mics only like two feet away from the guitar, um, it's going to sound pretty dry, even if you're in a really glorious acoustic. Um, on the other hand if you put your mics 20 feet away, you're likely to get an overwhelming recording of the sound of the room, not the uh, intimacy of the direct sound from the guitar. And it will be pretty much unlistenable in that way. Uh, so, So what I'm usually aiming to get myself is the illusion when you put on the track that you're in the presence of the player. It's got to be present, it's got to be clear and intimate, but there's this kind of bloom all around, which is not overpowering. It's not such a long reverb that it sounds something like playing a piano where the sustaining pedal is down all the time, Mm -hmm. you know. And you're not constantly aware of the space where the recording was made. The effect of it is just to make the sound airy and full and sweet. So that's what I'm trying to do. But the way I've nearly always done it is not to have an elaborate array of mics all set up in different places. Um, I prefer, if possible, just to use a single pair of really good, accurate, omnidirectional mics. That means they're picking up more or less equally from all directions. Mm -hmm. They do actually have a little bit more focus at at the top end, at the treble end, in the direction they're facing. But with a, a pair of Omni mics spaced a little wider apart than the width of a head, Um, I I go for something like 36 centimetres. That gives a a nice feeling of space. It's excellent on headphones, I find. Uh, Mm -hmm. not, Not a bad stereo image on speakers either, although the image on speakers can be a little bit imprecise if you're not careful with spaced Omnis. But what it does do is it replicates the way the ears work uh, pretty well. The ears are basically omnidirectional. Um, Yeah. You know, um, they work like pressure microphones. In other words, the eardrum responds to the fluctuating pressure in the air without really knowing or caring what direction the sound waves are coming from. Yeah. Um, Of course, we have this... Uh, this solid mass of Bone and uh, gook in in between the two ears, mm-hmm. which which is the head. Uh, That's um, one so, way to describe so, it. So, so, so that uh, yeah, more solid in some than others.
0: Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, some it's a little hollow, <laughs> but uh,
1: especially the politicians. But we we won't get into that. Mine's got nothing in it whatsoever. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that that does actually produce some shielding but mainly uh, you know if if you're trying to pinpoint where the sound is coming from it's mainly a question of what time the sound first arrives at one ear compared with the other Uh, so a sound from the from the right side will reach the right ear very fractionally earlier than it reaches the left ear and that I think is the main way that uh, our auditory system uh, pinpoints the sound. So you you can get a pretty accurate sense of the space and the, the direction, especially on headphones. Uh, yeah. If you use these, these mics, which are not actually discriminating between different directions, they're omnidirectional in themselves but they're spaced apart and they i just i just like the richness of the sound that that you get with them but you have to be very careful where you place them uh, it's sometimes only a matter of a few inches too close or too far away and and you lose that fine balance between the direct and the ambient sound and it either sounds uh, a little bit claustrophobic and dry or a little bit too much like you're listening to someone playing in an empty room yeah you know uh, so you know I'm I'm looking for this uh, sound where you can really concentrate on the music and the instrument itself but it's complemented by this glow of an acoustic around it
0: now obviously the distance away from the guitar uh, is impacted by many variables, the instrument, the player, the space, etc., cetera, et cetera. But um, when you try to find this distance, how do you approach uh, finding this spot? I mean, obviously, you probably have a general idea of how close or far you want to be, but do you find you walk around the room uh, next to the guitars to find what sounds best to your ears, and then try placing the microphones. Or how how'd you go about this?
1: Uh, yes, I do. I do a, a, certainly a little bit of that. Um, I find, for example, there's quite a difference in the the sound you get at different angles. So I very rarely put my pair of mics directly in the firing line at ninety degrees to the guitar soundboard because uh, I find that the sound is, is just a little bit raw and harsh in that okay. in that direction. Um, what, what I do more often than not is is go over a little bit to the right as the player sees it. in other words, okay. a little bit more uh, you know firing at a skew angle to the bridge. Uh, that by the way tends to produce a, a slightly warmer sound. But if you go the other way, more to the fingerboard side, uh, I I find that gives a a little bit more clarity. Sometimes it it sounds more effective to go over that way. Uh, I'll also put the mics a a little bit higher off the floor. Not vastly, but uh, somewhere between the, the height of the guitar itself and the player's head. Uh, okay. You know, that kind of, of height. But the thing is, uh, as I said before, there's only quite a, a narrow range of distances that that will really work uh, in any given venue. That distance, by the way, will vary quite a bit from one venue to another uh, because, you know, if you're in, in a dry-sounding place, you can get quite a bit further away from the instrument before... The sound of the room becomes too much. Vice versa. Um, I, I was just reading a, an interview with uh, Norbert Kraft about his way of recording, which sounds pretty similar to mine in that he likes to use spaced omnis as well. Uh, yeah. But the church where he's done nearly all his recording, St. John Christendom in uh, Newmarket in Canada, that really is a big sound and it sounds glorious a, a lot of yeah. the time. I mean, I, I, I must say, I, I do have some reservation about how long the reverb is sometimes, de- depending on the music. But um, the, these recordings are generally fabulous, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it, it sounds like he comes in quite a bit closer because he's all too aware of how lively that, that acoustic is. On the other hand, if, if you're in a really dry place, you're in trouble anyway. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you can back off as far as you like, but you, you won't get any more help from the kind of room that uh, Elliot Fisk once described to me that he tried to do a, a recording in a, in a room. And he said, oh, man, you put out the sound and it comes back in a casket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's great! <laughs> yeah, and, um, and it, it's it's true. It's it's so uh, it's so demoralizing when you're in a place like that, isn't it? Yeah. And if you were to record a Steinway D concert grand piano uh, in the kind of space which is ideal for the guitar or the lute, it would very likely sound gross because uh, there'd be so much sound flying around in all directions. Uh, every time the pianist opened up, that there'd be a, a huge muddled clatter of sound. This is why I think these places that really suit the guitar are quite special and specific.
0: It's a, The guitar has such a different sound, both in quality, amplitude, so many... Differences. Uh, I can totally understand why it needs such a different space as opposed to where a string quartet may record yes. and such. One thing I wanted to uh, also point out when you're talking about how demoralizing it is to the guitarist recording in the dry space and how it's difficult to get a good recording. I mean, you know, you there are some. I totally agree with you. It so- It always sounds better recording acoustically suitable spot for the instrument but you could get at least a decent sound with a synthetic or electronic reverb but the problem i find is as you're saying is just so demoralizing to the musician and they might not feel very inspired in the performance and not react in a positive way when i've recorded in dry spaces which is unfortunately uh, a bit more the extent of my experiences especially uh, during these times where i'm stuck with uh, the the house I'm living in. Mm. Um, It's really tough uh, to feel inspired by your own playing, which obviously has detrimental music effects. And even if you can get it to sound decent, you know, bloodied in some reverb,
1: uh, (laughs) I love that quote from Elliot. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, there are all, all sorts of things like that. I mean, having said that, we are pretty adaptable as a species <laughs> you know uh, and actually session musicians for instance uh, spend their lives in dry studios don't they yeah um, and they know how it works um, they know perfectly well it's going to sound all hyped up when it's all put together and these demoralizing sounds that they're hearing back <laughs> as they play are not the sounds that will be on the track um so I'm sure you can adapt uh, uh, and and get to know what works and, and what doesn't. But it takes practice. It takes uh, quite a bit of it, imagination, doesn't it? To, yeah. uh, for example, to to be able to judge how to turn a phrase with the right timing it's like telling a joke with the right timing or something like that um, yeah. you know I, I i think timing is probably the most critical thing in music performance and you know the really great players have a fantastic control and, and awareness of when to do everything that they're doing but that becomes so fine when you're playing an actual performance in a real space that you're constantly reacting to the sound that's coming back, aren't you? And uh, and if you have to imagine that, it might be quite a barrier to judging these timings to perfection. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: this again is going a bit more technical. Before maybe we talk about some specific sessions. I know in general, um, you're recording with the Sheps omnidirectional microphones, which are phenomenal microphones. Are you? A bit more in the camp of using small diaphragm condenser microphones uh, for recording classical music, or do you play around with some other uh, microphone designs? Uh, yes. Uh,
1: well, I, I've to be honest, I've I've never been one for for trying a different microphone every session. You know, uh, uh, borrowing mics all the time and trying them. I've done a fair bit of this. In the past, one time I thought I might even go crazy and buy uh, a, a pair of Neumann valve. Uh, well, you 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 say tube, uh, <laughs> tube. Out here. that uh, very uh, tiny signal from the capsule, of course, has to be immediately amplified within the body of the mic, and it's a question of whether that amplification is done with solid-state transistors or tubes. You know, and of course, uh, until sometime in the 1960s, I think it was, all mics were with tubes. All amplification mm-hmm. was with tubes. Uh, and, uh, and and there are, there are still quite a few producers uh, who swear by old tube mics, you know, saying it, it all went downhill <laughs> from the moment <laughs> they started using solid state instead. Um Fortunately, I backed off before completely ruining myself by buying these mics uh, because at the time I was, I was actually doing most of my recording with DPA 4006 okay. uh, or, Omnis, which are also extremely high-quality, uh, accurate uh, Omni mics. I still use them a lot, actually. It's usually between those and the Sherps with the MK2, which is the, the flat omni capsules, flat meaning that, that they don't have any treble lift or anything like that. So uh, I did a comparison u- using the, these extremely expensive tube uh, Neumann mics and then uh, the DPAs that I normally use. And I thought, you know what, I prefer the sound of the DPAs. And it, it wasn't just to avoid the paying the money. And actually, I, I think in terms of accuracy small capsule mics are uh, technically better, but, um, you know, the, the larger capsule mics have more character. Um, yeah. So it's a question of whether you like the character that they had. But... um I don't feel particularly comfortable trying different mics and and then and then saying oh I like that and going straight ahead and and doing a whole CD's recording with mics that I've never used before because actually you really have to know how to use any mic to yeah. to to get a a really nice result you know it's not just the mics it's where you stick them
0: Yeah for me I, I I'm kind of with you on the boat I prefer on the microphone front, a much cleaner and accurate sound for classical guitar. You know, if I'm doing a pop or rock production, obviously that's a whole nother ballpark, which, you know, which is what studios are primarily doing, you know. But in a sense, I, I, I think the classical guitarists and classical musicians in general Focus some, and I'm not saying other styles of music don't do this, but classical musicians focus on their tone production to make the best possible sound, not planning on depending on a specially colored microphone to alter that sound to make it sound a bit more, uh, a bit more beautiful or whatnot. And small diaphragm condensers, to some ears, especially those who, you know, are involved maybe a bit more with pop and rock productions, where you want to get very kind of. Fat, very colored, uh, tubey sounds. Sometimes uh, these types of microphones might sound very. I know the word "clinical" is used, which I don't really like that word. <laughs> but, but um, the small diaphragms—they are technically superior in every sense except self noise to the larger yeah. diaphragms. But in a sense, to some ears, it's the deficiencies that creates a pleasing sound. But as I said, the guitar. We want to capture that accuracy quite often if we're in a good sounding room, at least.
1: Look, don't don't get me wrong. I I, I don't want to sound dogmatic about any of this. Uh, and when people say to me. Wasn't it great when we used to listen to music on vinyl discs? Uh, It had such a warm sound and that all went with digital recording and CDs and all the rest of it. I don't think that's a stupid point of view or anything. I'm sure some of it is to do with nostalgia. I mean, Mm -hmm. one thing I think we sometimes forget is that we're all at our most impressionable and enthusiastic, I guess, uh, in our late teens, early 20s, sometime around then, and the the kind of intensity of pleasure that you get from all sorts of things, including music, it tends to be eroded a a little bit down the years. So I think most people are nostalgic for the things that they really loved when they were that kind of age. And engineers and producers and the whole industry start, started to uh, scratch their heads, think, why, why do so many people find this uh, technically accurate sound of digital recording so unappealing and they started div- devising ways of making it sound more analog you know more yeah. more more friendly and i can i can perfectly well understand that but you know what i'm looking for myself is you put the track on and it's like an open window you know you're not kind of prettifying the whole thing with a, a lot of EQ. Uh, I must admit, I occasionally, or maybe even more than occasionally, I'll just sneak in a little bit of very high quality reverb from a Bricasti, just to make the reverb go on a little bit longer if it's a bit too short, you know. Mm-hmm. That that would be on a whole CD, not just at certain moments or anything yeah, like that, yeah. you know. But I'm very uncomfortable with uh, doing too much of that kind of thing, it's fatally easy to let your hand slip and and uh, you know uh, pour too much reverb over the top. Absolutely. So so <laughs> it, it all becomes a kind of treacly, you know, immediately appealing but ultimately unsatisfying sound. But that's just my uh, my personal preference. Um, it kind of works in this little bubble that i work in but in the wider world i wouldn't claim at all that my approach is better than anyone else's and you know sometimes i i hear recordings that have been uh, quite heavily produced and you know they've been recorded in a studio but it's been done so well that you think, oh, God, that's great. I'd love to be able to do that.
0: <laughs> now, tell me about the recording session you did with the Vita Guitar Quartet uh, performing their
1: own transcription of Rhapsody in Blue. We recorded that um, quite soon after they'd made the arrangement. We were aware of this danger at, at, at the time. Uh, and the way we, uh, we we dealt with it was uh, we, we spent a lot of time uh, working on the piece section by section, uh, I think we we must have spent something getting on for about, uh, well, a day and a half, I think it was, which is quite a lot to spend uh, on, on a piece that's about 17 minutes long. It's a good amount of time, yeah. Uh, and they were long days as well. But it was a very exciting creative day and a half, we were playing around with different possibilities, sometimes even changing the arrangement in, in places, sometimes changing some notes, but mainly trying to get each section so that uh, this intricate enmeshing of the four parts really worked. Of course, an, another thing, if you're taking on a piece that's so iconic, uh, so, so well known, you don't want to produce a kind of shadow of the original that, that sounds ridiculous in comparison. Um, I mean, as it is, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would just say, you can't do Rhapsody in blue on four guitars. It just can't be done. (laughs) Um, and I must admit, I was skeptical when they told me they were, they were going to do it. Uh, what I didn't realise at the time was that uh, the Assad brothers had a- already done it on two guitars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and done it pretty well. But I think uh, they were able to get some fabulous differentiated colours in, in the group that was uh, uh, you know, kind of quasi-orchestral. And the other thing that I, I think is really great that you can do with, with guitar, especially a, a group of guitars is uh, this this business with timing, accentuation. You can get absolutely knife-edge precision of, of rhythms. So uh, you can get something akin to this kind of really snappy original jazz band version of Rhapsody in Blue, uh, with, with banjos in it and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and, um, and, and at the same time, the classical guitar can be really beautifully expressive. So when they come to the big tune, you know, you might say with that piece, first of all, how the hell are you going to do the clarinet glissando at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> but, but their answer to that was This piece was originally written for I think Piano Duet um, uh, and, Oh right. I forgot about and, that And it was yeah. a scale and, and they made it into a lovely Campanella scale On at least two of the guitars I can't remember how many were, were involved Maybe even all of them mm. the soupy tune at the end you might say come on guy so how are you going to get that on the guitar you've got to have an orchestra with sustain to do that uh, but they transformed it into what sounded like a, a beautiful guitar piece i thought yeah you know. yeah it's uh, uh,
0: quite a performance they put together
1: That that was one of the most enjoyable um, recordings I, I've ever been involved in uh, because yeah. these guys are such fun to work with. You know, even if you're working really hard, flat out for for, for long days, you know, it's just such fun from beginning to end. Um, yeah. But I I don't expect all sessions to be creative in in that way. Uh, when I can tell that everything's already there. All my job comes down to is just helping them to realise what they've come to do. A good example of that is Nigel North playing Vice on the Baroque lute. He's an old hand at recording. He's, he's done so many in the past and they've all been wonderful. He likes to plan his own editing, so he knows all about how it works. He has a very good idea how he's doing uh, as he goes along. So he doesn't need me to justify my existence by chipping in with all sorts of inane suggestions. I just keep out of his way. If you play uh, a little bit of that vice pasacai, what we have there is two DPA 4006 mics placed around about six feet away in this church in Gloucestershire, which works so beautifully for the Ludes. And all I did was put the mics in place, let him get on with it. Of course, I'd be following the, the music all the time, just to make sure that we weren't overlooking anything. uh, Yeah, yeah. And then Nigel took the takes away, planned the editing, sent me his edit plan, and I'd put it together with very little fuss. And what you get is all the best bits, usually in quite large chunks, put together. And there's absolutely no signal processing of any kind. Um, No EQ no reverb, just the original recording exactly as it is. That's another kind of recording that I particularly enjoy, absolute master of his art. The track is like an open window on him playing at his best.
0: He's an extraordinary musician. Another uh, recording I was curious about, uh, you were mentioning about recording the Baccarini quintet, the the famous one that has uh, Fandango. Remind me, who is the guitarist who re- yes. you recorded this uh, with?
1: A, a very talented young Swedish guitarist, Johan Lofving, a really bold, imaginative player. He plays modern guitar, but his speciality is the romantic guitar of the mid-19th century or any time in the 19th century this latest CD which is called fandango exclamation mark All right is uh, <laughs> it's actually mostly solo music and he plays on a very nice uh, French 1850 guitar uh, gets a beautiful sound out of it so it's mostly solo aguado cost saw um, okay etc starting with the Aguado introduction and fandango and finishing off with the Boccherini quintet uh, with the uh, consone quartet specializing in um, period instrument performance so they play on gut strings and and all that now for that one i did use more than one pair of mics uh, incidentally i used only one pair of mics for the whole of the vida quartet Uh, If you point the left and right mics outwards a little bit, you get a little bit more of a stereo spread, even on speakers. And that gives a very natural sound, I find. It means that you can't manipulate the balance, the internal balance of the quartet. But there again, that means that everyone knows where they are. You know, they're recording the balance that they hear. Now, I did a similar thing with the Boccherini. So I just used one omni-pair of of Sherps on the quartet, and Johan, the guitarist, was facing them at some distance away. I think it was something like 14 feet away from the quartet. Okay. So that there was enough separation that a separate pair of mics on the guitar would give him a little bit of extra help in the balance, but not so far away that the quartet couldn't hear him. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think everyone was, was quite happy with uh, recording that way.
0: Were you using a pair of Omnis on the guitar as well, then, or did That's you go right. XY? yes, yes. Okay.
1: Uh, yes. Incidentally, I did uh, take the precaution of reversing the left and right mics on the guitar. You you can perhaps imagine why I had to do that. You've got one pair of mics pointing at the quartet and Mm -hmm. and quite close to the quartet. You've got another pair of mics pointing at the guitar, which is facing towards the quartet. If you're not careful, the left mic on the guitar is going to be picking up the right side of the quartet (laughs) and and the and the sound of the quartet is going to get very ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs>
0: Oh, I didn't even think of that. that so so the, the the
1: yeah, so the, the guitar is also picking up a little bit of the quartet, but the yeah, right yeah. the right way around as it were.
0: So So did you just um, I'm assuming when you record spaced AB omni's, you're panning hard left and right? I am. Yes, yes, that's right. So do, yeah. in this case, you just panned the left mic to the right. Side for the guitar. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, how much of the balance did you mix in in regards to the quartet
1: and the guitar? Uh, Well, in that case, the string quartet was a little bit subtler than a modern quartet. But then, so was Johann's 19th century guitar, quite a small sound. So in fact, I did have to use those mics on the guitar quite a bit. Thank you, John,
0: for being on the show. You've been listening to the Tone Classical Guitar Podcast with your host, David Steinhardt. And we hope to see you again in two weeks for a conversation with Antran. Until then, please enjoy this wonderful performance of Bakranese Bandango.